coming up on The Exam Room. So the most divergent diets that you could possibly create would be an entirely plant-based diet versus an entirely animal-based diet. Now, you could call this a plant-based diet. You could call this vegan. And over here, you could call this carnivore or keto, whatever you want to do. But the bottom line is completely plant-based versus completely animal-based. Five days of each, every person does both. During these five days where you're doing this diet, they're checking your poop every single day to see how your microbiome is changing with this new diet that you did. What did we find? Number one, with both diets, and I think this is an important and interesting fact that everyone needs to know. Number one, within 24 hours of a dietary change, your microbiome is changing. All right, so the food that you are eating today by tomorrow will start to make changes to your gut microbiome. This is, like to me, a message of hope and optimism, which is that you can change your gut microbes by changing your diet. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Huntsville, Alabama, Moreno Valley, California, and Frankfurt, Germany. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 91 of season 6, number 387 overall. You know, it may not surprise you in the least to hear that what you eat makes a big difference with your microbiome. But what may come as a shock is just how big that massive difference is. I mean, massive is kind of an understatement. We're talking night and day, day and night. So what is right and what is healthy? We're going to be looking at two completely different diets today. The diet of somebody that eats a completely plant-based diet and then somebody who is eating meat with every meal and nothing else. Literally sitting down with a plate of meat and going to town and sometimes, my friend, in the purpose of this conversation, that meat may not even be cooked. So what is the difference there? Well, we are going to find out with our good friend, gastroenterologist extraordinaire, two-time New York Times bestselling author, the Prince of Poop, the Pharaoh of Fiber, Dr. Will Bolsowitz is here to do a gut check with us. Also, beyond the microbiome differences, what about the difference in risk for stomach and intestinal cancers? You gotta figure that that's gonna be a pretty big difference as well, depending on what the person might be eating. So the focus is on your belly today and what you're putting in it. And also because this was the exam room live, you know how we do, we open up the doctor's mailbag and we took some great questions from the exam roomies who were able to watch live with us on YouTube and on Facebook. We had somebody write in was like, okay, I hear you talking about meat here, but what about tuna? right? How, what effect does that have on your gut bacteria? And then a completely different change of pace. We get into antibiotic resistance and why soup? Oh yeah. Why soup tastes so much better after it's been in the refrigerator for a couple of days. You know what I'm talking about. It just keeps getting better with time until a certain amount of time, but man, 
that two to three day window, that is the sweet spot for some soup, isn't it? Plus, we had somebody write in wondering about a claim that is being made about a pill that supposedly can turn glucose into fiber so that in theory, you can eat whatever you want. Well, what's the truth about this pill? We got Dr. B to give his assessment on the program today as well. But we begin with meat and plants and a massive difference in microbiome. Here now, a fantastic conversation from the exam room live with our good buddy, the gut health MD, Dr. B. Dr. B, how you doing, sir? Hello. 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 So I got this idea, man. Uh, when I stumbled across a social media account for a gentleman who goes by the handle of the Liver King, and I thought about you immediately. I was like, huh, this guy is literally sitting down at the table with about three pounds of raw red meat, and all this guy does is eat nothing but meat, some eggs all day, and I'm like... I wonder how different this guy's microbiome looks compared to somebody that's eating a plant-based diet. So let's dissect this. If somebody eats down and they eat three pounds of raw med red meat, what's their microbiome going to look like, bud? <laughs> it's not, it's not going to be pretty. And you know, Chuck, you mentioned in the lead-in uh, taking a look with a telescope. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I would prefer to not have the telescope treatment. I'll take the colonoscope if necessary. <laughs> Yeah, well, you're, yeah, whatever. Some scope. You just go in there and take a look. We don't have to dissect the words. We're dissecting microbiome, man. Fair enough. Fair enough. Scope. I mean, the key was the scope. I understand. <laughs> um, <me> out. <laughs> and, you know, uh, this guy, the liver king, I mean, let me, let me just say this. Like, I think first and foremost, um, I don't think that it would be fair for me to use one person to exemplify everything that takes place with our body when it comes to human health. Um, that is, in, in fact, part of the problem that currently exists on social media, which is that we look at anecdotes and we look at like people telling their social media version of the story, which is never actually the truth. Um, and then we somehow believe that that is actually the truth, which doesn't really make any sense. So, um, so when you look at this person, the liver king, like I, you know, whether he was healthy or unhealthy, I wouldn't want to elevate him as the picture of like what we should be striving towards, particularly because he's using certain illicit drugs to make his body look the way that it looks, which actually has been like completely, uh, like he admitted that himself. Nonetheless, with this question, rather than looking at anecdotes, rather than, you know, taking his poop sample. Let's actually look at the evidence. Let's look at what was published in Nature, which is the top medical journal on the planet, um, in 2014 by researchers from Duke University. And if we were to hop into our um, Back to the Future vehicle, so what is it, the DeLorean, Chuck? That's it, man. The DeLorean. DeLorean. Good pull. And like the, the, the door lifts up in like a cool way, right? You know? I still want one of those cars, man. Yeah. And clearly, like engineering-wise, that doesn't really make sense because it's so cool that if it was if it made sense for engineering, we would have all the cars looking that way these days, but none of them do. Nonetheless, um, you flip open this car, you get in the DeLorean, and you go back to 2014. And in this moment in in scientific history, we are very curious about the power, the potential power of the microbiome, based upon animal studies, but we haven't actually demonstrated that you can change your diet and therefore change your microbiome um, in humans. Like that had not been shown yet. 
Now, we all accept this in 2023, but in 2014, we did not know. This is where um, uh, these researchers come into play. Lawrence David from Duke University basically said, let's set it up with a group of humans with the most divergent diets possible. So the most divergent diets that you could possibly create would be an entirely plant-based diet versus an entirely animal-based diet. Now, you could call this a plant-based diet. You could call this vegan. And over here, you could call this carnivore or keto, whatever you want to do. But the bottom line is completely plant-based versus completely animal-based. Five days of each, every person does both. By the way, there was an ethical vegan who agreed to participate in the study so that we could see what happens in an ethical vegan even. And so during these five days where you're doing this diet, they're checking your poop every single day to see how your microbiome is changing with this new diet that you're doing. Okay, what did we find? Number one, with both diets, and I think this is an important, interesting fact that everyone needs to know. Number one, within 24 hours of a dietary change, your microbiome is changing. All right, so the food that you are eating today by tomorrow will start to make changes to your gut microbiome. This is, like to me, a message of hope and optimism, which is that you can change your gut microbes by changing your diet. Now, the second thing was, okay, so if your diet changes in response to what you eat, how different was it? between the completely plant-based diet versus the completely animal-based diet. It was wildly different, as you would expect. It was wildly different. With the plant-based diet, we got more of specific types of microbes. Um, an example of one would be lactobacillus plantarum. All right, you get more of this lactobacillus plantarum. Well, perhaps you've heard of lactobacillus plantarum. This is the same bacteria that actually helps us to ferment and process our food when we make sauerkraut. It's literally the exact same bacteria. And if you go to your store and you look to buy a probiotic, if you look, you will find Lactobacillus plantarum. This is a probiotic bacteria. It's good for us. When people ate the plant-based diet, within five days, they were shifting their microbiome towards more probiotic bacteria that help us to ferment our food. And by ferment our food, it's not just creating sauerkraut. It's also creating short-chain fatty acids, meaning the fermentation of fiber to create the most anti-inflammatory molecule that you can possibly make, okay? That's what you get from a plant-based diet. Within five days, it's already happening. Flip side, what happens with the completely animal-based diet? Well, the problem is the fiber content of a completely animal-based diet, we all already know the answer to this question. How much fiber is there? Tell me in the comments section, everyone. I can see you there. Tell me how much fiber is in a completely animal-based diet, and I will verify for you in a moment. On this diet, in five days of a completely animal-based diet, Chuck, um, there was the emergence of different types of bacteria, not the kinds that you get from a plant-based diet. These are kinds that you get from an animal-based diet. These were bacteria that are known to be associated with diseases, diseases like colon cancer, which, no surprise, meat has been connected to colon cancer. It's an accepted carcinogen, right? Bacteria that have been associated with inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease. Red meat consumption has been associated with that. So has dairy consumption been associated with inflammatory bowel diseases. 
So we're getting things like biophilo wadsworthia. And this biophilo wadsworthia is an inflammatory bacteria. It's not anti-inflammatory. It's inflammatory. It's trying to create inflammation. It wants you to have Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. It wants you to have colon cancer. And that's what you're getting on the completely animal-based diet. Now, Chuck, there's one last thing that I want to mention. So again, bottom line, food you eat today, impact on your microbiome by tomorrow. Second point that everyone needs to know, the choices that you make can elevate your gut, make it even more healthy. You can get more probiotics. You don't need to take a probiotic capsule. You can you can culture and, and activate the ones that live inside you right now. Or alternatively, you can make choices that create an inflammatory microbiome, which is going to lead you down a path that you don't want to be going down. That's the bottom line. But the third thing that was kind of interesting, Chuck, by the way, is that with the animal-based diet, there was something interesting that showed up in the microbiome. Within five days, there was the emergence of antibiotic-resistant bacteria within the microbiome. Antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Now, why would that be? And the answer to this question, I'm not going to quiz you all again. By the way, the answer to the fiber content on the animal-based diet was zero. The answer to this question, why would you have antibiotic resistance, is not because meat automatically causes antibiotic resistance. It's because in the United States, where this study was conducted, we're pumping up the animals with antibiotics. And this is the number one contributor. The majority of antibiotics in the United States are not given to sick humans in a hospital. The majority of antibiotics in the United States are, are given to animals as a part of animal-based agriculture. And we are creating antibiotic resistance, not in a theoretical form. We're creating antibiotic resistance inside of you. And we don't know what the problems could be that come from this when we project you know, years down the line, but it's not a good thing, that's for sure. Uh, theoretically, does it matter? I mean, do you know if if we see that same level of antibiotic resistance if the meat is labeled grass fed or uh, you know free range or whatever the case may be, pasture raised, whatever the case may be? Um, are we still seeing those same kinds of of levels, or is this really when all of those animals have been herded and they're in close quarters, and then they're the ones that get force fed the antibiotics? Um, so, you know, we have to isolate this conversation about antibiotic resistance because this, this is a um, global area for concern because when our antibiotics stop working, then we will return to a time that wasn't that long ago, a little more than 100 years ago, where we didn't have antibiotics. And therefore, the number one causes of death were all infections. Like literally, if you go back to 1900, Chuck, 40% of people in the United States, they died from infection. And today, that's a very small number. We've reduced that by 95% in the United States. All mm. right. So we will go back to that time. And we have to understand that we need to, we need to make choices that help us to reduce antibiotic resistance in this country. And part of that is to be stewards or make sure that we are appropriately using antibiotics and only using them when they are required, when they are necessary. That involves conversations with your doctor. Antibiotics are a good thing when you need them. They are not a good thing when you don't need them. And many times people actually don't need them. But the second part of this conversation is about the fact that majority of antibiotics in the United States are not even given to humans as a part of our healthcare system. They're given to animals as a part of animal-based agriculture, which we could unpack why they're doing this. But the problem is 
that this short-term gain, which really is just putting money into the, into the hands of the person who's growing these animals, that short-term gain that they get in terms of finances is ultimately, we're going to pay the price for this. And the price that we're going to pay is in human health when our antibiotics stop working in the future, which maybe doesn't affect you and I so much, Chuck, but I got three kids, we're about to have four, and I'm really worried about how that's going to affect my kids or my kids' kids, my grandkids someday. So we have to think about this if we care about human beings. We have to think about this. Um, now, your question was, and sorry that I got all tangential on you there. It's all good, man. This page <laughs> you is yours, brother. Ramble on. <clears throat> thank, thank you for allowing me the time to go through that. But um, to answer your question, Chuck, yeah, there are forms of, of uh, animal products that can be consumed that are free of antibiotics. So, you know, as an example, like you can get um, dairy products that are clearly labeled free of hormones, free of, of antibiotics. If you buy meat that's organic, it's extremely expensive. I can't even really tell you the price because I have never purchased organic meat because I haven't had a steak in like 10 years. But um, it's extremely expensive. My understanding is that it's like 25 pounds, $25 per pound. And that will be antibiotic free. Would it be healthier? Um, in a trivial way. Because you're not really changing what a person is eating. So the same bacteria that emerged in this study in five days, like biophil Wadsworthia, which I was saying has been connected to inflammatory bowel disease and colon cancer. Those same bacteria, they will clearly show up when you consume a steak, whether it is organic, grass-fed, grain-free, antibiotic-free. It doesn't matter. You're still going to have the same microbiome changes. It just might be like a trivial difference. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. We're focusing really on beef. Would the same kind of principles apply for pork and chicken and maybe even fish to a certain extent? Well, so they, in this study, they um, were consuming a variety of different animal-based foods. So it wasn't exclusively beef. They were consuming chicken eggs. They were uh, consuming pork. I mean, the bottom line is that it was an animal-based study. It wasn't a, a you know, bovine-based study or something of that variety. Um, these other foods, I mean, we're, you know, Chuck, with, within nutrition, if we're, if we're going to be like completely honest about nutrition and try to properly place things, it's all points of relativity, right? So in other words, what you would do is you would say like, here, here are the foods that are healthier and here are the foods that are less healthy. And it becomes essentially like a chain or a ladder where you can place specific foods in specific locations. And you can say, here is the healthier version of this and here is the less healthy version of this, right? So, and if we were to like fixate on animal-based foods, and say, like, what are the healthy versions and what are the unhealthy versions? Clearly, like, the unhealthy versions are the processed meats. Those are the least healthy version. And I don't think that beef is that far off from those things. Um, that being said, like, if you were to move towards things that are more, uh, like, seafood-based, so um, salmon as an example, we have to be honest and acknowledge that within the Adventist II study, which was um, the largest study ever conducted of people who consume a plant-based, vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, omnivore. In this study, the longest-lived population were the pescatarians. It's probably because of the omega-3s that they were consuming. And in the microbiome studies that I have seen with regard to salmon specifically, 
it does appear that actually there's beneficial changes because omega-3s are anti-inflammatory, right? So we have to be honest about that. Now, flip side, like when we're being honest about this, that also means having a complete conversation. And a complete conversation includes the acknowledgement that our oceans are wildly different than they were when you and I were kids. Like they are wildly different today compared to the way that they were when we were kids. And we have dramatically diminished the supply of fish And the reason that you don't hear me out there beating the drum of saying everyone in the world should be pescatarian and consume salmon is because we've already overfished the ocean and we would overfish it even more and there would be nothing left. So we have to be thoughtful about how we approach this. Are there ways that we could approach this where you can get those omega-3s? Yes, there's a number of different ways that you can approach that. Does it require you to eat salmon? No, it does not require you to eat salmon. There are healthy ways to get your omega-3s that do not include consumption of salmon. I hope that answers your question, Chuck. Very much so, my friend. So let's think about, you know, on your Instagram, man, you are doing a bang up job posting videos of you in the grocery store. And I'm sure every time you go down the soup aisle, you come across bone broth and you just see that. I mean, just shelves and shelves just stocked with every brand imaginable here. A lot of what it was you were talking about in terms of how meat itself can affect the microbiome. Do you think that something like bone broth would have the same type of impact or how would that contrast to say just like vegetable broth or vegetable stock in terms of what happens to the microbiome? There's been almost no research for the amount of money that is being spent by consumers of bone broth. There's been almost no research into the question of like, so what does it actually do? Are there any benefits? Um, in the limited, <laughs> which by the way, I think if we're being thoughtful and smart about this, if you have a like multi-billion dollar industry and no one's actually doing research, what does that tell you? Right? Because um, if I had billions of dollars, I would invest at least some money into conducting a study to see and prove that my product works, right? And then if it proves that my product works, I would want you to know. Because then that makes my billion-dollar industry a $10 billion industry. And so it's interesting that we haven't heard anything here. Um, So anyway, the little that we have done uh, there was a study that was conducted looking at bone broth. Now, you know, importantly, people need to understand like the the process of making bone broth involves like you have to throw a bone in there, and um, you are cooking at high heat, and that high heat is sustained, and it's a bone. It's, it comes from an animal, and that bone oftentimes is a reservoir for heavy metals that the animal has been exposed to. So these heavy metals get deposited into the bone and then you cook that bone at high heat and basically what you're doing is that high heat is releasing these heavy metals and you're creating a toxic soup. All right, and that's, that's actually what the research has shown. That when you add a bone to broth, that you actually are increasing the heavy metals within that broth. Now, like where is the evidence for benefit? Um, some, some of you may have heard that like there's, there's research with chicken soup. And that is good for our immune system. And um, what's interesting about that is that when they've actually analyzed this, they think the reasons why it may be beneficial for our immune system is not because of the chicken. It's because of the other stuff that we put in there, which includes the vegetables 
Um, when you cook vegetables, even if you were to remove those vegetables and not consume them, which of course, most of the time with chicken soup, like you put carrots in or whatever, carrots, celery, onions, you're going to actually consume those. Um, but if you were to remove them and just have a broth, there still is soluble fiber. Soluble fiber is going to uh, actually like be extracted from those vegetables. So you get that. That's good for your microbiome. You also get polyphenols. So like the again, the the flavors that are being imparted on the water to create a soup or a broth are actually of plant origin. And, and they are, in many cases, um, beneficial to our gut microbes because they're polyphenols. So the point being, vegetable broth appears to be good. Adding a bone makes it more toxic. I can't understand why a person would want to add the bone to vegetable broth, which is why Chuck... Um, when, I mean, this is just like, basically we're talking through right now, the rational explanation for why in fiber fuels, my first book, and in my second book, the fiber fields cookbook, I have a myriad of recipes that I call biome broth. <laughs> and that's because if we want to build the proper broth for our gut microbiome, you would remove the bone that's not advantageous and you would max out the veggies. Here's Kind of what I'm thinking, though, like simplistically, is can you honest to goodness tell a difference in the flavor between whether or not the bone is there? Because I think that like for 99% of people, flavor is what's going to matter most when they're sitting down to eat. And if you can't taste it, what's the point of having something in there, especially if it's going to be detrimental for your health, which goes back to what it said, what you said at the beginning, where you're like, we don't have hardly any research to support any of these health claims that are being made about bone broth. So that is a that's an interesting little nugget to chew on there, don't you think? Yeah, chew on that little nugget of bone if you want to. <laughs> the nugget of bone in the toxic soup. Oh boy, <laughs> we are painting a delicious picture today. Uh, last thing before we open up the doctor's mailbag, because man, we have a lot of questions now. Uh, the roomies are chatting it up. We're just being honest. Honestly. Well, that's what man, truth bombs, baby. We're dropping them all day, every day. Um, last thing here, when it comes to the microbiome of somebody who is eating that exclusively meat diet or like just extremely meat heavy, even okay, what is their risk of intestinal cancer, stomach cancer compared to somebody that is eating that exclusive plant-based diet? What's the microbiome doing in terms of tilting their odds one way or the other? Well, I mean, I think that we, in order to properly answer this, you don't, you don't go through the microbiome to answer the question of what impact does your diet have on your risk of developing colorectal cancer. You go straight to the source. Let's make the direct connection. If you consume more meat, what is your risk of developing colorectal cancer? If you consume more fiber, what is your risk of developing colon colorectal cancer? And the evidence is very clear. The, um, the uh, World Health Organization has a branch which focuses on risk associated with cancer. And their, their job is basically to do a scientific review and uh, say, say to us, here are things that we know are carcinogenic. Here are things that like the evidence is clearly showing us that like we think they're carcinogenic. We may not have the overwhelming proof, but like it's pretty darn clear. And what they've said to us is that processed meats are carcinogenic. And the next closest level to that is where red meat falls. 
And this data is all surrounding colorectal cancer. So when we look at the microbiome, the microbiome to me is supportive evidence. It's not the principal evidence. The principal evidence is that when you eat more red meat, you increase your risk of developing colorectal cancer. That's the principal evidence. But the supportive evidence is to say, oh, how interesting it is that in just five days on an animal-based diet, you just so happened to increase the number of uh, of biophil wadsworthia, of bacterioides, of anastypes putridenis, uh, which are the specific types of bacteria in that study. And they've been, like many of them, have been associated with this colorectal cancer risk. Now, flip side, Chuck, I can't help but go straight to my, um, my favorite fiber study of all time, which was conducted by uh, Professor Andrew Reynolds, who is from New Zealand. And basically, like he compiled all of the available data in healthy humans, not sick people, health, generally healthy humans. And he looked at the correlations between fiber intake and risk of developing many different conditions, including colorectal cancer. Um, and basically, what he found is not only do people reduce their risk of developing colorectal cancer when they consume more fiber, but actually there's a dose response. So if you go from 15 grams, which is the average American, if you go from 15 grams of fiber per day, up to 20 grams, you get you get a reduction of your risk of colorectal cancer. You go from 20 to 25, you get even more reduction. You go from 25 to 30, we're continuing to drop. Do you drop it to zero? No, you don't. In the Adventist 2 study, even people who are eating a vegan diet still had a very serious risk of colorectal cancer. There's more to colorectal cancer than whether, whether or not you eat vegetables and meat. There's more to that question. There are other things that are part of our society that we can't get away from. You live here. Um, so I think we need to be aware of that. You can't drop your risk to zero just by being vegan. All right. Let's go ahead and open up the doctor's mailbag here. Take a couple of questions. Let's start with somebody who wants to pick up where we left off talking about the differences between uh, fish and meat. We were talking specifically about salmon. Well, David at 1225 is wondering about canned tuna. Wants to know, Doc, how bad is canned light tuna in comparison to meat like beef? Does it also introduce as much bad bacteria to the gut? Um, I have not seen a study specific to canned tuna, but I think that we need to, so let's, let's, I think we've talked about beef and the effect of beef on the gut. So I don't know that we need to talk about that anymore. So let's focus on the canned tuna for a moment. Again, I haven't seen a clear cut study. Here's what we do know. A couple of things. Number one, um, fish will accumulate long chain omega-3 fats. These are beneficial fats that we need more of. Um, these are fats like DHA um, and EPA. So these these are these are the the omega threes that we're trying to get more of. That's the benefit, okay? And we do believe that this is good for our gut microbiome. Healthy fats are good for our gut microbiome. Flip side, canned tuna. There are a couple of issues. One is the canning. What are the pres preservation techniques that we are using here? We probably are preserving this with a tremendous amount of salt. And that salt in that context is not is not appropriate. Like we don't, we don't want to preferentially consume foods that add more salt to our diet if we can avoid it, if we can find a superior substitute. That's one. The second thing is that tuna has been well known to be an accumulator of heavy metals. So we've been talking about how heavy metals are toxic, including to the gut microbiome. We were talking about within the context of bone broth. Now let's talk about it within the context of fish. As we move up the food chain, going from small fish to larger fish, 
the heavy metals accumulate. That's because the small fish individually don't have many heavy metals, but when you eat a lot of small fish and you add them up, it does result in the larger fish having lots of heavy metals. Tuna is one of the major accumulators. So we need to be aware of this. I would not make this your daily uh, uh, lunch and make this your sort of tradition-based dish. You know, to consume tuna once in a while, much like many other foods, I mean, again, like I can find things that are better and worse. I can find things that are better and worse. Um, but I don't think I would make this the backbone of your diet. You ever had the chickpea tuna, man? I mean, that that blew me. Yeah. I was a fan of tuna salad back in the day, but chickpea tuna hits the spot, Jack. I'm Let me tell you. you. Glad you brought that up because you can make a you can make a dish that like satisfy, satisfies the palate, gives you the same flavor profiles that you would get from tuna, which by the way, many people like. I get it. Um, and yet, you can be consuming more legumes, and we need more legumes in our diet. And chickpea tuna is a great way to do that. Thank you for bringing that up, Chuck. Oh, for sure, man. Uh, shout out, by the way, to Karen Dugan from the from the Center for Plant Based Living. She's one half of the Doc and Chef. I love you. You have a ton of great recipes and fiber fueled. Um, but her recipe for chickpea tuna is off the charts good and i will gladly send that to you so you can experience it maybe even put a little sauerkraut on top i don't know if you would go that far but man it is it is tasty stuff my friend tasty oh, yeah. tasty sounds amazing uh we were talking about antibiotic resistance a little bit earlier jeremy at 1219 has an interesting question wondering whether a whole food plant-based diet can actually reverse antibiotic resistance so actually i think that it kind of dawns on me not a lot of people may not understand quite what antibiotic resistance actually means and what it is. So can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, yeah. So um, let's, let's kind of like teach on the concept of these bacteria, because you have to keep in mind that many of these bacteria, they can, you know, what takes me, uh, so I'm in my 40s, several kids, um, but like it took me into my 40s to procreate several kids, right? Um, whereas these bacteria, uh, they can, in 20 or 30 minutes, create a new generation. So they're constantly turning over. And if you were to like take, like, let's pretend that it's 6 in the morning, and we're going to follow the um, family tree of one bacteria, okay? One bacteria starting at 6 in the morning today. By 6 in the morning tomorrow, it will have a 1,000 offspring, Chuck, that one bacteria. Right, so this is how quickly they can multiply, and it becomes very important because this is their superpower that has allowed them to exist for billions of years. No matter what the climate and circumstances and environment, and no matter what it may be, they figure a way out. And this is evolution, which is that in evolution, pressure ultimately creates a change. Within this context, the presence of antibiotics which by the way, have existed for billions of years. We just didn't call them antibiotics, but this is what the microbes were using against one another. So anyway, antibiotics, you give an antibiotic to, let's pretend there's a thousand bacteria, okay? Among those thousand, there will be 10 that like they just so happen to have some special gene, special mutation, special characteristic, they survive. They survive because they are resistant to the antibiotic. So we killed out of 1,000, 990. We have 10 left over. But 24 hours from now, I told you, every single one of those bacteria is going to create 1,000 offspring. So now, going from 10, 24 hours from now, we have 10,000. 
antibiotic bacteria that have multiplied, right? And so basically what's happened is we've eliminated all the ones that are sensitive to the antibiotic, and now we are replacing them with the ones that are resistant to the antibiotic. This is why we have to be cautious with how much we expose bacteria, whether they be in our body, in a cow's body, anywhere. We have to be cautious about how often we expose these bacteria to these weapons, or I'm sorry, these tools that we have for our healthcare system. Because every single time we do one of those exposures, we do pay the price, which is that, as I've just illustrated, there's a percentage of them that will be antibiotic resistant and they will multiply. All right, man, dude, you are just you dropping knowledge bombs, baby, man. I love it. You were on a roll just saying, I, man, I was like, I hope he doesn't stop, man. I'm sitting under the learning tree today, baby. Um, soup question, I guess because it's getting cold and it is that season uh, for much of the country. Question for Dr. B. This one came in at 12.06. Uh, when I cook soup, I usually store it in the fridge for two days. Are the nutrients still there on the second and third day of the soup, or do they kind of dissipate over time? Interesting question. What do you think? Yeah, it's, a great, it's a great question. Does it taste delicious? And the answer is absolutely. Soup keeps getting better. Absolutely. And, and part of that is that the you are actually extracting nutrients further. So now any cooking technique that we use, Chuck, whether it be um, cooking in water, creating soup, or baking, or cooking on the grill, we are changing the properties of our food. And sometimes those changes can be to our benefit, and sometimes those changes can be to our detriment. All right? But the bottom line is that we are changing things. Soups tend to be easier for people to digest if they have gut-related issues. So people that have a lot of food sensitivities, they will typically do much better with soups. And the beauty of this is that this can be a strategy that you employ in order to increase your fiber content increase your plant diversity, feed your gut microbiome the prebiotics that it's starving for, and yet simultaneously feel really good. All right. Uh, quick shout out to CJ Torres, who's watching right now, dropped a question in the doctor's mailbag. CJ, actually email me. Um, usually wouldn't do this to stop the show, but email me, chuck at theweightlosschampion.com with your question. Um, and we can probably uh, talk a little bit further about that. Uh, let's take a question, though, from Agent99. All right, fiber question. Here we go. Can eating high fiber foods but not drinking enough water cause constipation? I think I know the answer, but you tell us. Yes, this is, uh, this is a great question. And actually, I saw another question that was um, by someone named Tommy, who said, I, I want to piggyback off this, Chuck, if that's okay. Sure, man. Here's the question. It seems if I eat more fiber, I am more constipated and bloated. Is it too much fiber messing up my microbiome? What to do about it? What do I do about this? Okay. Um, so fiber, it turns out, is a nuanced thing, like so many aspects of our life. It's like, I'm sorry, we can't, we can't always make it as simple as we want it to be. Sometimes there's nuance to life. And that's the truth with fiber. Fiber is your friend. It wants your gut microbiome to be healthier. Fiber is not destroying your gut. But if you have gut issues, there are limits to the amount of fiber that you can consume at any one time. And if you exceed those limits, then you may actually suffer symptoms like bloating or constipation. All right. This is the result of a gut that's not prepared for the amount of fiber that you just consumed. I would make an analogy to exercise, Chuck. 
All right. Exercise is good. We all know that exercise is good. That being said, we all have limits to our exercise. We have different strengths and weaknesses. There's certain parts of my body that I'm very proud of because they're strong and they do really well in the gym. But guess what? I'm not running a marathon anytime soon, all right? Because that's not the way that my body works. I'm not that great at running long distances. It's just the way that I am. It's always been that way. Um, so anyway, the point though is like, could I make myself a distance runner? Yes. Could I wake up today and go run a marathon? No, that's a horrible idea. Could I build up over time with sequential progress, further challenging myself a little bit more over time to eventually run a marathon, even though I have just told you that I am not a distance runner? Yes, it's entirely possible. I could do that. So the key here is when we're consuming fiber, we have to start low. And we have to go slow and we have to allow our body to dictate. And so with Tammy here, by the way, I said Tommy and I missaw that. I'm sorry. With Tammy here. Hey, Tammy. Um, with Tammy here, part of this is start low, Tammy. All right. And slowly increase. Part of this also is that this may be actually exposing that there's underlying constipation. So you may not feel constipated, but if you're not adequately evacuating and you put a whole bunch of fiber in there, it's going to exacerbate it. It's going to make it worse. So it may turn out that the solution to you, yes, drink more fluid, help to float that log down the river. All right, fiber is the log. Float that log down the river. You don't want it to get dried up on the rocks. But the other thing that you need to do is you may need to help to facilitate some better bowel movements. And this is where, Chuck, uh, I have found this is not for everyone. You need to talk to your doctor, but I found that magnesium can be very helpful. Get a little bit of magnesium on board. Get the poops moving. When you get the poops moving, once they're moving, you start to turn up the fiber and you will be shocked at how much better you feel, how much more you can tolerate, and how this fits just and feels just right with your gut. Because ultimately, your gut wants more fiber. And it's just a matter of like this process, much like exercise. Our body wants to exercise, but there is a process of how we get there. Man, I kind of feel like I learned that the hard way when I first went uh, vegan. Yeah. I uh, went overnight, yep. dude, and oh, that was a rough couple of weeks. <laughs> I'm not even going to lie to you, man. I was so bloated, uh, but I pushed on. I mean, I, I was doing sit-ups in the middle of the night, you know, just trying to force the air through. Um, and then like one day I woke up and it was, pff, everything had changed. It was amazing to me. It was just like a switch flipped overnight. I, I would suspect that it would be like more of a gradual thing, but literally for me, it was a switch that was flipped overnight. Is that a common occurrence? Um what you brought up, Chuck, is actually quite interesting. So um, everyone is a little bit different. People always ask, how long does it take for me to change my microbiome and make it better? All right, so there's a couple things that we've already learned during our conversation today. One is that there are changes that start to take place within 24 hours, 24 hours of, of you changing your diet, or basically whatever you are eating today by tomorrow, it will be reflected in your microbiome. I think it's important to understand that the change that's occurring within that 24 hours is not an overhaul. You have not overhauled. You have shifted the balance. You have shifted the balance. And what you want is to continue to shift the balance with consistency over time. And that is how you overhaul the microbiome. And so it takes a period of time for your microbiome to adapt to whatever change you made. If you made a big change to your diet, it will take longer for your microbiome to catch up to that. It does need this opportunity to make that change. If you make a small change in your diet, your microbiome can catch up very quickly because that's a small change in the diet. 
So with you, Chuck, you made a big change to your diet, which required a big modification of your gut microbiome. And it took weeks. And if I had to venture a guess, I would guess like if we were to, again, hop in the DeLorean and go back in time, we would go find this uh, strapping young buck named Chuck that he, uh, it took about four weeks for you to get to this place where you felt better. That's what I've seen time and again, four weeks. There are exceptions. You have Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, a very serious um, health-related issue. It can take longer for those particular types of people. That's because of the complexities of their health condition. But for the average person, what I find is typically after about four weeks, they feel a lot better. Why would that be? Because eventually you got your microbiome to the place where it is completely capable of handling what you're throwing at it. It just took time for it to catch up, Chuck. All right, uh, let's grab two more here, and then we got an exciting announcement about a very special week that's coming up pretty soon. Uh, Kim1221 wants to do a little bit of myth busting. Chuck, please, all caps with the please, exclamation point, so she really wants us to talk about this. Ask Dr. B how a pill can change glucose into fiber in your gut. She says right now there's a company selling these and claiming that... Uh, they can eat whatever they want, and it changes into fiber. Uh, are your spidey senses tingling here, sir? I don't even know what that means, so I'm not going to answer that question, Chuck. I'm going to move on to the question from Kim. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <and> my, <laughs> I mean, I will say, my son is a huge Spider-Man fan. So actually, I did understand the question. I just couldn't help myself, but kind of gave you... I got you, man. I got I you. You cracked me I love up. you. Okay. Right. Ah, you're my boy, Blue. Yeah, you're my boy, Blue. Um, hey, Kim. So uh, it's interesting because this actually requires us to, to get into nerdy biochemistry for a moment. How do you create fiber? The way that you create fiber is actually by um, linking multiple different sugar molecules together. And when you link those sugar molecules together, they create a chain. And that chain is going to include at a minimum, at a minimum, 10 units of sugar. So you combine 10 units of sugar in a straight chain, and you ultimately are creating what we call complex carbohydrates. Complex carbohydrates are like basically when you're chaining together multiple different sugars um, at three or more, it becomes complex. And this is how we ultimately create fiber. And fiber can come in many different forms. It's not as simple as I made it sound. Like if you've read, if you've read my books, then you know that we don't even have an estimate for how many types of fiber exist because... It's so complicated that our scientists have no clue. They think that there's at least millions, if not billions, of types of fiber in nature. All right, so how can a pill change glucose into fiber in your gut? In theory, if you chain together sugar molecules, you could create fiber, in theory. The key with this is that there's a distinction between, and I, by the way, I'm, uh, I, don't, I don't know this company. I haven't looked at any other stuff. So I really don't feel like I'm commenting on this company specifically. I just want to sort of comment more globally, which is to say that um, there is a difference between promises that are made through marketing and sound scientific evidence that has been proven and peer-reviewed. There's a difference, right? We, we discussed bone broth. There are a lot of promises being made. Where is the evidence? And I think with this kind of thing, let's be careful because like, is the theory true? Yes, the theory is true. But how does it actually work? Does it work? What is the effect in humans? And how do we know this is to our benefit in the long term? 
And let's just be careful here um, because I think that in a fiber-deprived society, people love simple solutions. So in a fiber-deprived society, I can imagine where people are like, hey, Dr. B says more fiber and I can get more fiber and not have to change my diet at all by doing this. And I'm not signing on for that, that, that specific approach. Um, I, don't, I don't agree with that. I think that it has to come from dietary modification. There may be a role for supplements, but let's not try to empower people to pop a supplement and not change the diet. Diet comes first. Supplements can be in addition to. All right. And final question. I'm actually going to do dealer's choice here for you, Doc. Uh, we can talk about either tempeh or we can talk about lectins. Which would you like to wrap up with today? I want to do both. And then Dr. B, I promise that I will be succinct in my answer, uh, like two sentences or less. All right, here we go then. Lord of the Strings, 86 at 1208, either working with Fabric or they're a musician. I don't know which, but either way, cool name. Dr. B, are the probiotics in store-bought tempeh still beneficial if that tempeh is pasteurized, which most tempeh is? If if tempeh is pasteurized and it says it, then it will not continue to have the uh, active uh, live cultures, meaning live bacteria. The same would be true if you were to cook the tempeh. That does not negate the benefit of the fermentation. Those bacteria have transformed that food. Whether they are present or not, there are still benefits to the food that has been transformed. You can see similar effects in sourdough bread, where sourdough bread, the microbes are no longer present, they're dead. Yet, sourdough bread is vastly different in terms of the effects on your physiology than traditional bread. All right. And the honor of the final question definitely goes to a musician, Quarantined Quartet, 1209. I eat beans, peanut butter, and some cashews every day. Should I be concerned about consuming too many lectins? Um, this is an interesting question. I'm familiar with Quartine Quartet. Um, now, consuming too many lectins. I am not concerned about lectins. I am not concerned about lectins. These foods, beans, legumes, peanut butter, which peanuts are legumes, cashews, um, these are health-promoting foods. Study after study after study has shown us that like, if you do a randomized controlled trial, people are healthier as a result of consuming these foods. They have less inflammation. There's also an overwhelming amount of population-based data where the healthiest people across the globe are consuming diets that include more of these foods. We currently have a dietary pattern that is deprived of these foods. Deprived. And people make the argument that we should reduce them further. And it's a theoretical argument. When people consume these foods, they have less inflammation. So I can't find evidence to say that you should be reducing your lectins. That being said, like if you eat a lot of beans, Chuck, beans have FODMAPs. And those FODMAPs could give you bloating. And you could misinterpret that bloating to think that that means that you have inflammation. And I think many people have. And that's not a lectin. That's the FODMAP. And that is something that actually is a, uh, a food intolerance that can be easily overcome using the low and slow technique, using the principles of exercise that we have already discussed today. There it is. And you know what? There are a lot more principles to get into. And so I think that's the perfect time to get into the very special week that begins on November 20th, runs through the 27th, my friend. It is fiber-fueled 
week. I am pumped up about this because you're saying November 20th, man. Who needs to wait until the new year to start really taking charge of your health? Let's do this, and let's do this today. Fiber Fueled Week, November 20th. What is Fiber Fueled Week? What are you cooking up, Doctor? Yeah, I'm I'm super excited about this, Chuck. So um, those of you who have followed my career and you, you kind of have seen how things have evolved for me, one of the things that I've done, Chuck, is to recognize that there are many people who want to take a deeper dive into specific issues or things that I teach, whether you hear me talking about them here during our interviews um, or you read about them in one of my books. Many people want to take a deeper dive. So I created courses. An example would be constipation or histamine intolerance or acid reflux or FODMAP intolerance or food intolerances in general. Um, these are issues that like, I haven't written a book and it really wouldn't make sense for me to write a book on those specific issues because they're specific. So if you want to take a deeper dive, this is why I created online courses. These online courses are like video lessons and a workbook and recipes. And basically, I'm trying to empower you with the knowledge that you need in order to understand yourself, your body, how it works, and also how to talk to your healthcare provider. So uh, these courses are available to anyone to purchase and view at any time. But I recognize that Black Friday is this sort of period, special period of time where people are like disproportionately uh, being exposed to sales and can get things at a better price. So you know what? Let's If you're going to get people a gift for Christmas, why not give the gift of health? including to yourself, if you're the person who's looking for this. Why not give that gift? Because that, to me, gift, that, like, that gift is more important than any other thing. It's more important than money. So the point is that there are these courses, including, by the way, my largest course, which is the Comprehensive Gut Health Masterclass. All of them are going to be on sale for Fiber Fueled Week. There's the best price of the year, and it's 20% less. Yeah, man. 20% off using the code, <laughs> you guessed it, Fiber. So Fiber Fueled Week, there is a link to uh, bookmark so that you know November 20th, you go there, you sign up, get 20% off with the code Fiber. That is in the show description and in the episode notes. The plantfedgut.com slash fiber is the place to be. And one thing real quick on that, Chuck, if you live outside the United States, I managed to choose uh, a, a word that has different spelling in different countries. So just to be clear, we're using the American spelling of fiber, F-I-B-E-R. So RE wouldn't work in this sense. You know what? I can make sure my team double checks that and you can use the RE if necessary. I can get my team to get that loaded up. I'm not trying to exclude anyone. It's just the code that we used. Yeah. Do they do RE in Canada or is that they more in Europe? Canada and then fueled, okay. depending on the country, fueled oftentimes will have two L's. Really? Yeah. I haven't picked up on that one yet. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, can, I, I, I don't want to do this to you, but I could like go over there and grab one of my books from uh england and it's uh f-i-b-r-e and f-u-e-l-l-e-d fiber fueled dang on i would have sent that back to you and be like bro your editor's got typos in this thing man yeah there's my cookbook that is far yeah out. huh look at that all right fiber fueled all right man, <laughs> i could dig it hey man uh before we wrap up random question for you what were you doing last night because i saw the most amazing thing it sounds like whatever I was doing was not that cool compared to you. Tell me what you were doing, Chuck. I want to know. 
So last night was the big live show in uh, in the city in Washington at the National Press Club, and I had the Esselstons there. I had uh, Essie, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, we had Rip, we had Jane, and Anne, who is almost 90 years old. And Anne is a firecracker and hashtag goals, brother. I saw this sweet little dumpling of a woman who's a good inch or two shorter than I am, and I'm only 5'5", five five, tug a massive tire. I'm talking like a tractor trailer tire across the stage, and I've got the video to prove it, man. This was the most extraordinary thing ever. Check this oh my out. Gosh. What? So, like, what you guys didn't see is, like, for the majority of that, she really is kind of talking at 100% by herself. And this woman, I'm telling you, 5'3", maybe all of 115, and this tire is taller than she is, it is heavier than she is, and she is tugging the bejeebers out of that thing. It was the craziest thing I have ever seen in my entire life. It was amazing. That sounds amazing. That's so cool. I mean, I can't, I can't believe that. It's, she's, um, she is emblematic of vitality. I mean, into her late 80s and thriving and everything that I, I hope to one day be myself. Absolutely. And, and, you know, Dr. Esselstyn was there too. He, he'll be 90 pretty soon. He's as spry as ever. I mean, it was like really just, I was sitting there just in awe of what the possibilities are in terms of our health and longevity if you treat your body right if you take care of yourself and they have not always been eating a plant-based diet they have not always been strict like this they started this a little bit later in life and they talked about dr b the fact that in the on the esselson side of the family virtually everybody else had died young up until you know, Dr. Esselstyn, when he changed his diet, we're talking about people um, losing their life in their 40s, 50s, 60s. And here's Dr. Esselstyn about to turn 90. Yeah. You've got Rip, Jane, their brothers, their sisters, all doing fantastic. And it's just, what are the possibilities, man? They are endless. No. And it was just really cool. It's interesting, Chuck, because I, uh, my wife and I are celebrating our 10-year anniversary tomorrow. Happy anniversary, bro. Thank you. And I was going back through photos um, from our 10 years together. And it's so interesting because I like I I could show you the photos. It looks like if you were to say which one is Dr. B the oldest, it would be the one from 2013. It looks like I've reversed aging. And that's because when I was when I met my wife in 2013, I wasn't eating this way. And it was eating my wife that empowered me to make the changes. And now here I am, I'm in my 40s, and I feel younger, and I think I look younger than I've ever looked before, which is really cool. I mean, it's amazing. Absolutely. And you do look young. You look super young. You do not look like you're in your 40s whatsoever, man. Uh, I got you maybe 29, maybe 30. I don't know. Yeah, and like, you got that circle, go look at the Liver King. He's almost the same age as me. Go look at that guy and tell me. <laughs> I know, man.
I, I don't want to throw the guy under the bus because um, God knows I used to eat, you know, really poor diet as well, you know, and I, I'd like to think that there's hope for everyone. So when I when I use I want to make this real clear. This is a great way to wrap up. I want to make it clear that when we talk about somebody like that, it's not to throw them under the bus. It's not to beat them up. It's not to berate them. Because I think that all of us in our lives have somebody who's really dug into their ways of eating and are convinced that what they're doing is the healthiest thing, even though, you know, we strongly suspect as their loved ones that there are certainly a lot of areas where they could be improving in that regard. And and so it's just about coaching and educating and and letting people know that there may in fact be healthier options out there. Let's not be judgmental, but let's aim to educate. You know what I mean? Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think you're absolutely right, Chuck. It's not to throw him under the bus. It's more so to be clear that like, he has millions of followers. And when he puts out information that maybe he believes in, but the science does not agree, we have to be clear on this and we have to check that. 100%. And uh, I 100% agree that uh, I'm also excited to say that we've got uh, a new exam room VIP club that you can join, my friends. Uh, we'll get you early access to select interviews, early access to tickets for the live shows. So you can be up front, join us in person, see and tug that tire across the stage. Uh, exclusive events. We'll be doing virtual events with Dr. Neil Barnard for his new book, which is coming out in the spring. Um, and it all begins in two weeks. The, our very first uh, exam room VIP select interview is an interview that I did with Dr. Michael Greger for his new book, How Not to Age. That's going to be coming out uh, on November 20th, the start of Fiber Fueled Week. Uh, what a great way to celebrate, man. Do a double dose of health. So Please, if you want to access that, Chuck, I need to know because I'm, I'm literally going to go sign up. How do I do that? PCRM.org slash exam room VIP pcrm.org slash exam room VIP. Go there, become an exam room VIP, get the newsletters, get the exclusive access, all kinds of good stuff, plenty more to come. And I do suspect, and you had no idea this was coming. I'm just going to like throw it out there. I would love to get you on one of these VIP exclusive interviews, man. I think you and I could really open it up and just riff the way that, you know, maybe we talk about when the cameras aren't rolling. You know what I mean? I mean, I think that we have a little bit of fun, don't we, Chuck? <laughs> a little bit, just a little, a little bit. A little bit. Those people realize, uh, so let me pull the curtain back for a moment, everyone. Chuck and I are like literally texting each other a couple times a day. Just so you all know. Easily. 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 Our chain this morning was epic, man. We, we've got our fantasy football lineup set here, I think, football, for the week. Oh, professional wrestling. we got a lot of stuff that we have to talk about. That's my bud. You know, we're just two kids having a great time, dude. That's why I love doing the show with you. I wish that we had more time today. We went long, man, but it went by in the blink of an eye. Appreciate you being here as always, my friend. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, everyone. We appreciate y'all. That video that we showed of Ann tugging the tire at the live event is for real. And there's a link to it right now in the episode notes. You have to check that out. And we will be posting the full video from that night. The entire episode will go online on November 20th. We're going to put that up on Facebook and YouTube. So if you weren't able to be with us in person in Washington, D.C., certainly going to want to set a reminder to check that out. And we'll have the podcast audio up on the 21st just in time for thanksgiving and man what a great night that was what a great night we have done a lot a lot of fun things this year we had the show out in la awesome we had the show in new york awesome and then we had the night with the usselstons in dc 
awesome. I mean, it was so much fun. We had people come from 21 different states. We had somebody come in from Ireland to join us that night. It was just amazing. And it was my first time being able to sit down in person with Anne and Jane and Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn. And it's always great to be around Rip. He's just so much energy, but to be with the entire family for the night was really just an unforgettable experience. And people learned a lot about a lot of different things. Jane and Anne, I'm telling you, are just podcast gold. I love those two. I love those two. And just to spend time with them is the coolest thing. And of course, being around all of the exam roomies, I mean, you guys really do just you make my heart sing and we all together work to make the world a healthier place. And so thank you so very much to everybody who came out. And it was an honor, absolute honor to bestow the Mid Struber Ambassador for a Better World Award to the Esselstons last night, um, because they certainly embody everything that Midge did in her time here with us. And it is so amazing to be able to thank the Esselstons for their lifetime of contributions. And, you know, one of the things that you'll hear on that episode as well is how they are truly setting the foundation for a healthier future. And now how the next generation of Esselstons by the day are growing more and more and more passionate about health and nutrition. So this is definitely a can't miss episode guaranteed to raise your health IQs and tug on the heartstring or two. And we're going to have a lot of fun as well. So this is an episode that you're not going to want to miss guaranteed to raise your health IQ by more than a point or two. And certainly a lot of fun as well with Ann tugging the tire and Jane, by the way, doing a cartwheel. When she made her grand entrance, it was just too much fun, too much fun. So November 20th, that show will be coming out. And then shortly after that, the following week, New York City, hey, I'm coming your way. November 28th, I'm going to be up there for Plantathon. That's being put on by our good friends at Plant Powered Metro New York. This is really exciting. So this is a big event that's taking place in the Garment District. All the details are up on Plant Powered Metro New York's website and... You better believe there's a link to it right now in the episode notes. So New York City, come on out. Say hi. Let's have a grand, grand, grand time and talk about all the wonderful things that we had to eat at Thanksgiving. Oh, and by the way, a little bit before that, Houston, Texas. Hello. Coming your way as well for the Montgomery Heart and Wellness Summit. That is going to be on November 18th. And there's a link to that as well in the episode notes. Man, what a great show. Lots of knowledge hope, inspiration, all of the above, and then some today. I mean, I just feel like we had a lot of fun and really raised our health IQs by a point or two. And if you feel like you did that, maybe a little bit more than that, hopefully so, go ahead and give the show a follow or subscribe on Apple Podcast or Spotify, wherever it is that you get your shows. And when you do that, please also leave a five-star rating and a nice review. And that helps us climb a little bit higher in the podcast ranking so that when somebody goes and they're looking for a good nutrition podcast that is filled with facts that can really help take their health to the next level, boom, we want the exam room by the Physicians Committee to be the first podcast that they come across. And your following and your subscribing and your five-star reviews certainly do help to make that happen and definitely make the world 
a healthier place. But for today, that is all the time that we have, my friends. I want to say thank you one more time to our good friend, Dr. B, the Gut Health MD, the Prince of Poop, the Pharaoh of Fiber, two-time New York Times bestselling author. I could go on and on and on, but we'll just say thanks, Will. Appreciate you, buddy. Thanks again for being here and raising our health IQs. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. Oh, 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 oh,